From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Groundsman Conversations or Groundsman Conversation today because we're missing Mr. Williams again as I Google as we speak coups in the world, South China seas, uh, aircraft carriers uh, and the de-dollarization on the markets. Uh, He's not around so it's got to be one of them but we do have the wonderful Captain Morgan. How are you Giles? Rog, I'm well. Spring is well and truly sprung um, in London. And um, although I'm suffering a little bit, I have to name drop a little bit. But as you know, um, I went for a cup of tea earlier with uh, a gentleman for the younger listeners who won't know, a guy called Daley Thompson, who I used to work with back in the 90s. And um, we just had a cup of coffee together. And um, first thing he said to me is, you put on a bit of weight, mate. <laughs> and then he said, you need to shed some timber or you'll be a heart attack victim. And that that started. So I, all I can say, the only thing I did was I was going to have a flat white, but I had it with skim milk. <laughs> but tell me, tell me, how is he looking? Is he still looking a million dollars? Oh, my goodness. I tell you, he is an inspiration for an older generation. He keeps himself in mint shape and uh, he runs a few gyms. And but my God, he's just he's just a natural athlete. Still got it. His age has definitely um, softened him from when I worked with him as a little boy (laughs) at Adidas when I was basically his bag man and so scared of him because he was a proper God. He was the man. He was he was a God. He was. But absolutely lovely to see him. I saw I caught up with him in Hong Kong. He was doing some work for Laureus. The 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 the, the, uh, yeah. the the charity and um, we had a cup of coffee. As I said, it's I don't normally it's not to my taste having skimmed milk, but I tried it to try and impress the big man. But I don't think I've made his decathlon squad. Other than if I'm working for decathlon as a cashier, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but there, you obviously did ask him to come on and join us one day. Is did you? Yeah, absolutely. And he 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 said he absolutely would. And he said he'd uh, give us the, uh, the 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 real truth about what he thought about what is going on with athletics. So I think oh, you and he man. might. Become, I think you might be blood brothers. He's got some incredible thoughts, which I won't share oh, now. Which you will purr because you will be in in total agreement. So that will be oh, nice. That's one wait, for the future. Can't wait. Yep. Yeah, one for the future. So listen, just before we we bring the one for the present, which is an amazing guest today, one I'm really looking forward to. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of things. Um, was something that the, the thing Grant posted, uh, we, we joked about China a second ago, and he posted about China and the WTA. And I think his comment was, you know, the Chinese have got our number in the West. They know that we just live for a couple of news cycles, then we'll forget things and we'll get back to making money off their billion population. What was your view about sport in China, the WTA? Of course, CVC has just gone into them. It's all a little bit complex, isn't it, Giles? It, it's definitely complicated. And obviously we had the double hit of, of COVID and um, sort of geopolitics um, within China that has changed everything. It's not that long ago that countries like Great Britain were really ponying up to, to China. Great Britain talking about the new Silk Road, etc. And sport was going to be very much sort of an expo of that. 
I think the WTA has obviously, we, we all know why that's been a, a real issue and um, and the way that China reacted. But I think they're right. They knew that, um, A, that memories are short. short. But, sec- but secondly, there is a there is a requirement in the in the financial model of global sport that China can't not be part of it, particularly in a sport like tennis, where tennis is clearly they invested an awful lot of, of money and resource into the sport back in the early two thousands, and it's a powerhouse of the game and not to be there. And I, whilst I think it's sad in some ways because this is the kind of real politique that is where sport and real politique doesn't necessarily always coexist. I do think that China not being at the top of the world stage is is really fundamentally an issue for for sports going forward. So for me, it's not surprising that the WTA are back and people, you know, with different moral outlooks. I can see, I can understand all the arguments. Of course, I can, but I think what's more interesting and. Um, Mr. Barry Hearn, who's a great friend of yeah. this show, World Snooker. At the moment, it's the World Snooker Championships going on at the Crucible, one of the great sporting occasions in the UK that he very much built to create what it is. It's one of the fastest selling sellout sports in the UK, which I find not surprising, but I find it magnificent that that is the case. I know that World Snooker have have, have made the decision. Theirs was based on COVID that they're going back into China and they're going to forecast big growth there because you've got a lot of very talented Chinese players and, and, and it makes all sorts of sense. So it's interesting, though, though, because we're doing this and that all of this is happening in the backdrop of something much more important than maybe what a young tennis player was was had to, to succumb to or not. No one really knows the story. <laughs> but we've got Taiwan looming and that is the real story. And sport has to kind of hang by its thread because ultimately, like during the Second World War and the First World War, sometimes real events get in the way and, and sport has to take a, has to play very much second fiddle. So this is nothing new, um, but we're, we're sort of living it real time. But the, 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 the truth is that big global sports need to have China in the, in the wheelhouse. Yeah, especially if they're taking big finances money. And I, I don't know what the links are with CVC and that decision of the, the WTA. But today's guest will maybe give us a little bit of an insight into how you make the bridge between all the complexities and sensitivities of sport and running, as you rightly say, uh, to, to maximise the markets that are out there. And obviously Asia and China is a huge market. Why don't you introduce today's guest, Giles? Uh, certainly, uh, Rog. Um, I'm really thrilled, I think we both are, that Michael Spirito is joining us. Uh, we've been chasing him for a while. He's um, one of the founding partners of Sapphire Sports, um, whose parent firm, Sapphire Ventures, has a cool $10 billion in assets under management. They're the real deal. And uh, as we know, Sapphire Sports, I think earlier this year, announced a second raise of $180-odd million dollars a second venture capital fund in sport, which is focused on the sector that we talk about all the time, on sports, tech and media. And this war chest is in addition to their first fund that they raised in 2019 of $115 million. That They are playing in the space where they see the future of sport. And the reason I think it's interesting to us, so interesting to us to have Michael on, he's a very thoughtful, very experienced media executive, but he has been an investor in, in particularly for us, in, in Buzzer and Overtime, who are portfolio companies of theirs that we've had on the show, but also for firms like Fivo and Flowhaven and, and Green Park. Some really interesting companies that are really trying to advance themselves in the world in sport. 
And I think one of the reasons they've been so successful, there are a number of reasons, um, but Michael's own background is media. And he led um, digital media across the portfolio of 22 Fox regional sports networks. And I know that's something you want to get into because that was a real thing. And now the landscape of media is changing. But he was also a key part of the Yes Network and prior uh, to that part of the time, Warner Ventures. So this guy is a seasoned media guy who is seeing the shift in the sort of tectonic plates of media, which I think will be fascinating. He's also infuriatingly talented as a former college sportsman, because like my friend Nick Goggins at Pump Jack, he was a pitcher in baseball and a, a quarterback in, in football, which means not only is he bright and intelligent and presumably good looking, got all the girls, but he's made a shed load of cash. And now he's coming on, are you not entertained? <laughs> no, I'm so, really looking... I'm really looking forward to this because, you know, that my, my day job is very much an early stage sport tech and, you know, that marketplace has changed significantly in the last 12 months as I think this show kind of predicted a little bit. So I really want to ask Michael a shed load of questions because, you know, he probably is one of our leaders in this sector and he can tell us how he's looking at sport in 2023. Roger, if there were ever a show that you um, were wanting to sit and ask the questions, I think this is the guy where you've spent so much of what you do, for, as you say, for your day job, and, and here he is to perhaps give his perspective on how they were able to raise the money, and I think timing is everything, after all, um, and then how they deploy that capital and how they look at at some of the assets they've either got or considering because everything's changing fast. So let's get him on the show. Gentlemen. Michael Spirito, a very warm welcome to Are You Not Entertained and to, to the Groundsman Conversations. At last, we get you on. You're on the show. How lovely to see you. It's lovely to see you guys. Thank you for having me. I know it's 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 been a wait, but we wanted to make sure that we had announced our second fund so that, that we can have an even more fun, Congratulations. open, and honest conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Great well, effort. It's, it's, it is a great effort. And, and before we talk about that, and I think we've got an awful lot to cover in an hour, and if we do, it'll be a miracle. But I, I, I wanted to ask you this for some time. In your biog and, and, and conversations we've had, Michael, you're clearly one of those infuriating people that I, I detested at university because you were the, the jock. You played baseball, I know, to a high level and also American football. Is that why you got into the industry that you did around sports and media. Was it because of the passion of sport or was it quite different? Well, it, it definitely, it was informative. Um, during my, my youth and, and, and certainly my university days, it was, uh, sport was something I, I spent a lot of time in and around. Um, it taught me a lot of lessons, teamwork, collaboration, uh, all of those things. Um, when I started my career, it was more in finance and media, and I'll sort of get to the the thread that led to sport, um, and ultimately, uh, quite frankly, the, the foundation of Sapphire Sport as, as this conversation evolves. But sport was something that at that time, and again, I graduated university in 1998. If, if I could have made a career out of it, I, I absolutely would have tried to do that um, because it certainly wasn't going to happen on the ball fields. Uh, uh, you mentioned baseball. I was slightly better at baseball than American football. I played them both into, into uni, uh, but uni was division three in, in American sport in, in, my, in my case. So uh, it was very unlikely that I was going to be paid uh, for my endeavors uh, at any point past that. So yeah, it, it was just a, a, 
a thing that if I could have at that point in time created some sort of a career around it, I would have. And it just took me uh, about 20 years to do so. <laughs> Michael, let's pick up on baseball because you've got all the credibility in the world as a player. And I want to link a little bit immediately into regional sports networks. The the recent news uh, in regional sports networks about Warner and all of this stuff that for a lot of us was quite predictable. It seems to be hitting baseball more than anything else. And baseball, as we all know, is the, the sport that's got the, the oldest fans in theory and it seems to have lost its way. It's got too many games. From a sports point of view, forget business for a second. Where have we gone, Joe DiMaggio? What's happened? Well, Roger, I, I think... If nothing else, in the first couple of weeks of the season, you've seen some rule changes that uh, have um, lowered, lowered the game time, put some more excitement back into the state of play, and quite frankly, have tried to capture some of the younger cultural zeitgeist, I think, that other sports uh, um, are certainly the beneficiaries of. Um, baseball, as uh, one of the oldest, uh, if not the oldest sport, uh, at least in, in the United States, uh, in terms of how it became a professional sport, how it yeah, has been oldest. Uh, uh, played and covered and, and quite frankly televised, but first on radio and then and then on, on uh, national and local broadcast television, which really the trailblazer in a lot of ways, uh, uh, just from a, a sport media uh, standpoint. Um, but you mentioned a lot of things that that are true. It, the demographics, uh, you know, having operated a regional sports network or in the regional sports network environment over a decade before uh, starting Sapphire Sport, it was very clear that the demographics were, were skewed older, uh, um, that uh, baseball was not uh, tapping into the things that the National Football League, NBA, and other sporting entities had been doing. Um, it's, a, it's a game that is, is uh, played often. It's every day for the most part, 162 mm -hmm. days uh, uh, or games a season um, before the playoffs. So there's a lot to work with there from a historical perspective and a lot that could be jeopardized by the way in which younger people um, do things. And it starts with the media property where if you don't tap into those, um, those behaviors, um, you risk things. So look, the regional sports network itself was fundamentally built about around baseball product uh, over, right. over the course of decades. And if we want to just jump into RSNs overall, because Please. it's certainly it is the been theme of the moment, the, yep. uh, you know, one of the top stories in, um, in sport, it's, it's a business that is three decades old and it's a business that has a lot of stakeholders. Um, it's a business that in North American sport, you're talking about the non-national, right? So everything except for NFL. So it's fundamentally, um, in terms of the uh, the, the biggest partners, uh, MLB, NBA, and NHL. Obviously, MLS now with the Apple deal, uh, totally separate uh, um, standard. But it is something that is three decades old and, and has evolved, but has not evolved quickly enough, right? And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, chief among them is in terms of how you can digitize or offer next generation digital products. Those number of stakeholders, the leagues, the the collective bargaining with the athletes, the uh, uh, the national rights holders, et cetera. Once you sort of put all that together, it's a it's a slower moving mechanism to get a more robust, more next generation digital product or digital package in in front of people and 
with that comes risk. And I think that that risk has, has really uh, manifested itself very viscerally here. And because baseball has the most product, the most volume, um, and um, sort of the most tethering to that, uh, it is definitely in, in, in the crosshairs uh, from, from a media perspective. So now the question is, okay, how, do, how does the industry adapt? Right. How mm-hmm. do you take that opportunity to cut or forge something from um, from new stone that will better tap into um, into those opportunities? And the rights holders have uh, have tried that. Um, but again, a slower moving mechanism can't quite get there in time. And once younger people are doing things differently, it's a very, very hard thing to, to catch up to. I wasn't a baseball player, but I did the equivalent, which is cricket. Uh, cricket as a game, as you know, has evolved enormously over the years. It seems slow moon- moving, but actually, if you look back on the history of the sport, it's always adapted and always moved forward. It's just taken decades in between change, but it has happened. Does baseball need to change in the way that cricket has evolved? And given what you're talking about with the media landscape and complete um, evolution as well, is it the product as well, or is it more? You talk about consumption of young people, or do you not? Is it is that sacred? Do you leave that alone? What's your thought with both hats on? Well, it's sacred to a point, right? Um, game time is down, whatever it is, twenty five to thirty minutes, uh, with two or three rule, rule changes. Chief among them, of course, the the pitch clock. Um, that has been something that people have thought about. It's been on the table. It was tested in minor league baseball, but this was the year that major league baseball took it and implemented it. And after some fits and starts in the, in the preseason, uh, it's effect is, is very quantifiable. And I think that, um, also coming out of the world baseball classic, there was a level of excitement with, uh, with baseball that we hadn't seen because they hadn't had the world baseball classic, uh, classic in something like five or six years, obviously the COVID impact. So Going into this season, um, the excitement factor for baseball was as high as it's been since I I can remember, uh, at least in in the past half decade. So the sport itself is a wonderful sport to watch, to to attend live. Uh, um, I think it's one of the best sports that you can attend live. Cricket is much the same. Anyone who's had the opportunity to to take in a, a cricket test at one of the hallowed grounds in in the UK or in um, uh, Australia or, or wherever else, it, it's it's a similar feeling. You have to be there. Um, it's a, it's a very relaxed uh, uh, opportunity to spend time with with friends and, and take in a very very exciting sport. So those um, you know all of those things are still there, uh, but there had to be some tinkering with the actual product itself, Roger. So when you talk about the product, the f- fundamentally changing the product isn't necessarily going to happen, nor is it necessary as we've seen. Just, you know, eliminate shifts, get a pitch clock so that games come in under three hours and add some more speed and excitement and pizzazz to the game. And I think you capture a lot that these athletes can can bring to the table because that was neutralized in a lot of ways um, in, uh, you know, over the past couple of decades. And I think if nothing else, if you look at how sports is covered, right. And, you know, I'm, I'm in, involved in, 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 in overtime. And, and if you look at how just fundamentally sports have been covered by a, an incredible brand, like overtime over the past six years, you see that, uh, uh, putting the athlete in the spotlight and, and really, uh, uh, 
taking advantage of all the wonderful things that, that, that these, these incredible athletes do and, and showing them in the, in the right way and allowing them the opportunity to express themselves. Um, you know, I think baseball had been laggard in that and, and there's a real, real opportunity right now to, uh, to take advantage of it. And with respect to the, the just the economic underpinnings of how this, this, this sport happens, it's the same as in every sport. The media rights are, are a very, very big part of it. If we want to see team valuations keep going up and to the right, we have to build good, sustainable business models around those media rights. And digital and data-enabled business models are as important as ever in, in doing that. And I mean, that's kind of gets us to, to why we created our fund uh, five well, and a half let's, years let's, ago. <laughs> but yeah. I think one of the challenges of this podcast is to, is to keep it in some way linear because there are so many things that you say that you want to talk about and comment about immediately. You mentioned overtime there. And you were talking about baseball and, and you're given a very, well, I would say a relatively medium to high bullish uh, outlook on the sport. Would you be on the overtime board suggesting that their next league is a baseball league? Um, it's not. And well, just to, to talk about overtime specifically, our next league is boxing. We announced that uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, actually what, about a month ago. And we have to be very careful and considerate about the sports that we enter um, at overtime and boxing lends itself very well to, uh, highlighting younger athletes in a sport exactly. that is incredibly bifurcated in terms of yeah. what's governed and how it's ultimately sponsored, distributed and operated, um, at those, at those levels. Baseball has less of an opportunity candidly. Um, and this is, yeah. me, this is me speaking, not, not, not the, the management of overtime. Um, but, Baseball is governed by minor leagues and by uh, collegiate uh, baseball, at least in um, in uh, the United States of America. So the road to the major leagues is is pretty well understood and the opportunity to innovate um, isn't quite there at the level of basketball or boxing uh, or even what we're doing. Yeah. Even what we're doing with OT seven with, with American football, Um, that product is now in its second season where um, it's essentially highlighting the, the best and brightest of the high school uh, athletes in a pat and essentially a passing league, which is, which is a lot of the rule changes in the NCAA and NFL um, really just highlight that. uh, And it's basically putting that product on the field, highlighting those athletes and then taking the media from that and ultimately um, distributing it. And I know you've spoken to, to my, my good friend and colleague, Dan Porter, about this. He's uh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, it's, ad nauseum, I mean, so I'm not, certainly not going to step no, on No, no, but listen, <laughs> you know, what, what, what I would say, Michael, you know, all, all joking apart and to be very supportive of you here, I think the decision-making process about how you guys on the board, and Dan is really, really some, you know, the, the quotes that he's made about how you've supported him are, are, are impressive. How you come up with what sports you're going to attack now that you've got the audience, audience to sport, not the other way around with overtime. I think that informs everything that people are maybe misunderstanding about our sports industry. You alluded to a couple of things there. 
Um, you know, what is the governance uh, situation like? You know, the constitution, who gets to influence things, who gets to block things? You know, if you look at the, the deal with um, uh, Endeavour and uh, WWE, what was the quote they said? Uh, and we are also the commissioner. I think one of the things that I'd love to ask you about as we go through this podcast is, you know, how you look at opportunities where there is obvious friction in sport and frankly, it's governance and committee structures that don't allow a return on capital. And I think in overtime, you probably are having the most advanced types of conversations because you've got the audience and you're asking yourself, how do we apply this audience next and what sports can be made to work? Oh, there's no question about it, Roger. Um, you know, when when we at Sapphire Sport got involved in overtime, uh, it was January of 2019. And, you know, the company had a few million followers across social media, some revenue that we could understand, uh, very much a digitally native brand uh, across uh, social media platforms that had resonance, um, that had captured the voice of a generation, and that was operating at that time, uh, almost predominantly in high school football and basketball, where that governance was lacking, right? So, so the idea to create IP out of that in the form of a professionalized league um, was on the whiteboard, uh, but it was a very far-fetched notion at that time. Now, as those, as that brand uh, evolved and as NIL came uh, to, yep. to the table and the concept of professionalizing athletes, particularly younger athletes uh, in, in basketball uh, in North America um, seemed more and more likely the question was, well, why not overtime? Why shouldn't uh, uh, overtime uh, take advantage of that and offer an opportunity to young athletes um, to monetize their talents and their skill set and participate on a platform that would give them more exposure, that would give them more uh, um ability to uh, uh, further their skills uh, on the basketball court, further their skills in terms of how they are, their, their financial acumen, their media acumen, et cetera, and go to the NBA, European basketball, wherever it is that they're going to play professionally, a more finished product. Um, and those seeds were sown in, in the early days. Um, there was a pop-up uh, that was done in New York uh, with a seven-figure brand sponsor that highlighted some of those exact kids and the media that came yeah. out of that property was extraordinary. So American uh, football and uh, basketball lent themselves most closely to it just from, uh, you know, from an open field perspective, the opportunity was there. The governance was lacking. It was uh, predominantly a very bifurcated and unstructured system that allowed for a better, more professionalized business approach uh, to doing so. And I think it's very clear um, that that approach uh, is working, but we also have to be very careful and deliberate about the next pieces of IP that we go yeah. after. Let, let me continue on the governance thing. I did something at the weekend I was writing about something you know about very well. You, you're one of the first guys to get into this streaming world, what's called DTC now direct-to-consumer, you did that many, many years ago. And of course, a lot of rights holders are told you should do your own channel, you should become B2C business, capture that re-rating and everything like that. And you alluded to there what I think one of the issues is that is with governance, especially in leagues that 
don't have a fixed membership with promotion and relegation. If somebody came to you today and said, look, you know, there's a lot of people saying that the, the English Premier League could make a lot more money doing their own channel and they do back of the, the, the envelope uh, numbers that seem really, really high. What would you say to them? You're one of the guys that looked at this whole streaming area, first of all. How would you advise the EPL in this moment in time? Um, well, the English Premier League has an extraordinary product. It's it's globally relevant. Um, it, it is uh, and, and has been for, for many, many years, at least since the formation of the Premiership. Um, one of the, the best and most premier sporting entities uh, in the world um, with a high degree of interest, obviously not just in the UK, but in um, localities all over the globe. Right. So the I guess just the fundamental issue with how media rights are are monetized and have been monetized is the fact that, as we talked about um, a bit ago, it's it's now decades long. And in in those decades, you have a lot of different stakeholders that um, have been participatory in these business models. Obviously, the premiership and the governance of the league itself, the clubs of the premiership, uh, some uh, don't (laughs) ever get relegated. Uh, 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 Some do. Uh, um, And how sort of the 20 within the premiership are managed vis-a-vis the media rights is, of course, something that is handled very delicately uh, uh, within that organization. But then you have the, the, MV, the quote, MVPD partners, uh, the distribution partners in all of the various jurisdictions, obviously Sky in the UK. Uh, it's been NBC uh, in, the, in the United States um, uh, for the past several years and, of course, on and on throughout the world. So when you add all that up, uh, it's a very, very profitable business model that has been around now for decades in some manifestations. So the opportunity to go pure direct to consumer has a couple challenges. First and foremost is can you? And the mm-hmm. answer has been that you cannot vis-a-vis those MVPD deals and whatever those jurisdictions are. But the second thing is, and ESPN talked about this for years and years and years, is at what price can you sell a package for either in the local jurisdiction or on a global basis where it's bigger than the traditional uh, distribution uh, um, ways. Now, there have been certain negotiations that have happened over the years where things have been carved out. Uh, a certain number of games, usually a smaller number, some small percentage. Uh, um, we actually had done that at Yes on an over-the-air basis, and then those games ultimately found their way uh, to Amazon on a digital basis. So there's usually some leeway within those um, within those contracts, but at the end of the day, to go pure direct to consumer, Roger, as you said, is a massive leap, and the business model has not um, underpinned that so far. Now, at some point, given the consumer atrophy that we've seen on the traditional television or distribution side, and given the way in which younger people are consuming things, there is a digital first or a, a purely digital way in which everything will be distributed. Is it in five years? Probably not. Is it in 10 years? I think we're getting closer. But to take the bull by the horns and manage your brand in a way in which you can have a more direct data-driven relationship with the end user 
um, with that product. Again, people want to consume that product. They want a digital experience. They want to give you their, they want to transact with you. They want to buy tickets through you. They want to do everything. So the ability to enmesh that all in the media product, it makes a lot of sense. That would be a more direct consumer oriented product and probably should be, but it takes a number of different steps to get there. I think we've sort of seen that starting and with respect to the, the, the Premier League, it will ultimately come down to at what point do you make that leap? Like Disney did with ESPN, where you're willing to forego certain of the underlying uh, traditional MVPD yep. revenue to ultimately get to a point where you have a more robust product for 20 years from now, where the user... That's the, yeah, yeah. the innovator's dilemma. Exactly. The classic innovator's dilemma. Exactly. And, and, and you know... Um, I want to link that a little bit to a word you used very early on, which I think, given that you've got the background that you have, didn't surprise me. You talked about risk. Risk, I think, is a word that has fallen out of favour in the last 25 years in generally overall bullish markets, bull markets. And I believe that in a lot of sports specifically, there is a lot of underpriced risk that can be for baseball, as you mentioned, that the regional sports networks uh, collapse. Uh, there's just a lot of risk everywhere. I, w- I want to ask you something, staying on football a little bit, soccer. You're obviously very close to the City Football Group. We'll come on to that later. What was your uh, experience of living those, and it wasn't just 48 hours, it was going on for many months before, the idea that, you know, with closed leagues, you eliminate a lot of risk, which means that ultimately gives you a massive lift on valuations almost overnight because your discount rate is lower. You you must have had a lot of sympathy from a financial point of view as to the idea of going to a Super League. How so? In terms of? In terms of you are invested in a club that plays in an open league, okay, you will say, we will make sure we will never get relegated. We will make sure that we are always in the top four. But you must have had a, a, a lot of thoughts that other clubs that were in that moment with you, uh, an Arsenal, a Liverpool, a Tottenham, where they do have that risk of, let's just call it simply not getting in the top four, that the risk could be mitigated by going to a closed league. Where do you stand on the open versus closed league, I guess is my question. That's that's a, a difficult one to say. Um, I'm obviously in, in we at South Sport are in, in great partnership with with the folks at City Football Group that fundamentally sits in, in in their hands in terms of how, you know, how they would think about it. Obviously it was something that uh, was put forth. Um, I think some people went a bit deeper on it than others. I think that's been well documented. With respect to how um, you know how an open or closed league fundamentally works, you can look at a league like the NFL, where it's it's closed, and you know that you're in it, and you know that your media rights are spoken for. You know that uh, you have such and such chance at the playoffs, and you know that fundamentally that is a, a very um, sort of self-governed uh, environment. Now, there's a lot of ways in which you look at North American sport and say, well, actually, relegation uh, and promotion could, could could do wonders here and, and could make things more exciting and could make things uh, um, uh, function uh, uh, a, a little bit differently. 
But with respect to European football, it is such a, a historical product um, that has been nationalized over the course of, of, of many decades and in some cases hundreds of years that, um, you know, the community value and the the resonance that it has culturally and with fans, that was something that um, it, it probably shouldn't be trodden on. And if, if you get to a point where like one of my favorite, you know, we, you talk about my, my history in American football and, and baseball um, over the past 20 years, European football has been what I watch more than anything else, what I've attended live more than anything else. And I think the champions league is one of the great sporting products in the world where you have the best competition, the best players playing for the best teams competing against each other. And, and they, it seems like every year City's playing Bayern or Real is playing Bayern or City is playing against Chelsea. It's 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 the sort of competition that gets together communities from multiple of the the best nations uh, that put forth professional leagues in European football. And you would lose that overnight if you went to a Super League uh, oriented situation. And Look, we, I think we all on this podcast very well understand the economics of, of professional sport and, and in particular in European football. And the best and brightest will be the best and brightest. They, they will be in the top four. They will compete. They're not at threat for relegation for the most part. And the economics tend to support that at the top um, nationalized leagues in, in Europe. So as a fan, I would, I would be loath to see that, obviously. Um, you know, City's non-participation in uh, the uh, the Super League speaks for itself, as does that of other clubs, Bayern, et cetera, who um, obviously uh, moved away from it uh, very, very quickly. Um, so, look, as a fan, I know where I stand uh, from a business perspective. I don't know that much needs to be altered other than some tinkering around the edges of how product is increasingly digitized uh, and ushered into the modern era because these brands, the leagues in, in themselves included, are indelible brands that have very, very real resonance with uh, with consumers. Michael, that's a, a great segue. Um, we talked earlier uh, in the show about the second fund that you announced earlier in the year and was the reason that you were too busy to talk to us last year. Not too so, busy. Thank go- we are we are a registered <laughs> investment advisor, Giles. I understand. And, yeah. I understand. As Roger and, knows, um, I yeah, wanted, I wanted yeah. to be as open and have, have as fun of a conversation as we possibly could. Well, hurrah for that. And again, congratulations. So, you, you obviously, uh, the first um, fund was raised in 2019, about 115, 115 um, million US dollars. Here's the next one at about 175 or whatever, depending on the exchange rate. I now live in a country where things have crashed, so I have no idea what valuations are anymore. 181. But, um, 181. Thank you for 181. Um, tell us a little bit about that. You, I know that you had a lot of repeat investors, which is always very, very, um, a very strong situation to be in, but a sign of great confidence. Give particularly for the listeners amongst us who are not involved in in, in VC, 
a little bit of the process of how you go back to people and what the hypothesis was and what's different and, and what we can look forward for, which I know is a long play that you're, you're encouraging investors to say this isn't in and out. This is going to be a long time play. The media landscape is changing, as you've already alluded. Just share a little bit with us before Rog comes diving in with a, a couple of his uh, late, late, late two-footed ta- uh, tackles. Oh, a- <laughs> absolutely. And, and I know Roger spends a lot of time in this, this industry, so I'm sure we'll talk about valuations and the, the current state of the market and all that, that fun yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in terms of how, how, you know, how we've structured ourselves, um, Giles, I think it makes sense just to go back to that point in time in January of 2019 when we announced the first fund, um, because what we did was we we put together a group of limited partners, uh, and those those are entities that invest in our fund, so that we can then go invest in great early stage technology companies that we think will help change the world in in, in global sport, media, entertainment, and culture. We were able to put together a, a very unique group um, who are thinking about the world similarly. They are looking at um, a changing environment where their customers, again, these are brand owners. So we we put together ownership groups from all the major U.S. leagues, um, which was important for us to do. It had never been done before. Uh, A group like City Football Group, obviously their ownership of Manchester City, but also NYCFC and a dozen other clubs around the world. Uh, Great entertainment organizations and brands like AEG, uh, a global retail merchandising product a company like Adidas, um, all of those entities are looking at technology as an opportunity for them to advance their businesses. And investing against those trends earlier rather than later, um, where risk, Roger, as you say, risk comes more into the ecosystem if you do not harness technologies. We look at this, this sort of landscape and say, okay, do we want to go the way of, of, of print or music? Or do we want to use these technologies to advance industries before the disruption happens? So whether you are um, a brand like Adidas or whether you are AEG and you own teams, buildings and and music festivals, whether you are an owner of one of the the major U.S. uh, sporting teams, you're looking at your brand as sort of that conduit through which you connect to uh, your, your consumer, your user, your fan, whatever it is. And how those younger people are transacting, forming communities, perhaps most importantly, communicating with each other, you can better build data and digital driven connections to them, right? So that was the central thesis of of this first fund. And we had a lot of great partners who joined us on that journey, um, really when it was just an idea. And that I think is the most critical thing. It was an idea. We were um, very much in the business of professionalizing that approach to early stage technology venture capital in the sport, media, and entertainment global ecosystem. Um, so fast forward to uh, you know to the second fund. Um, we've of course had this this journey. We've in, invested in uh, some wonderful companies and helped them grow and worked very closely with our LPs uh, uh, on this journey. So when it comes time to to raise the second fund, um, we're very fortunate that we have some incredible partners who who continued uh, to join us on on this journey, which made the process I think a lot easier. So when when you see a fund announced in uh, in January uh, of 2023 of 181 million dollars, 60 percent larger than the first fund, not only a number of the the wonderful uh, uh, LPs that we had on the journey in fund fund one, but adding folks like MSG, 
folks like Arctos, who who are a fund unto themselves yeah. and a, a wonderful partner. They own share interest in 26 teams globally. They very much have professionalized the team investment approach, just as we believe that we have on the early stage technology side of things. Um, new and wonderful ownership groups like Dave Blitzer and Steve Pagliuca and Steve Kaplan and others. So, you know, these are folks who are very much involved in the ecosystem and by and large folks who have professionalized their own approach to investing and owning and operating assets. So we love partnering with entities like that because we believe that we've built um, this wonderful ecosystem to go out there and and find great founders and and, and invest in, in companies that can help uh, um, move the needle in terms of how innovation will happen uh, in this world. And Giles, as you said, this is this is a long run asset class. This is not uh, a, a, a buy something and it, or it goes public. Or, or flips in, in in private equity or or LBO within two three years. First of all, that market right now isn't offering those opportunities. No, but venture is a seven to ten year time frame for a fund. So you know we feel very good about the ecosystem that we put together, the limited partners who have joined us and continue to join us on this journey, and we're still very much uh, at the beginning of that and how we're building this. So. You know, roughly 300 million in assets under management, um, some wonderful partners and great companies that we've invested in uh, already. And we see this market to, to segue, Roger, I can see you see you getting ready for this one. We think this market is very intriguing uh, um, from a capital deployment perspective as we look at what the next year or two is going to is going to offer. Well, well, that that would be the soundbite. Intriguing is the adjective. I love that. I love that. Listen, we both operate on this. I do it in a, in a cottage industry basis. You're at the Premier League level. We need to start a little bit thinking really what Silicon Valley has been for the last generation, the last 25 years, uh, and, and, and how its mentality has been. In the main, it has been about growing things, and I'm, and I'm really like uh, being very, very... Try, trying to describe it as simply as I can, growing things, not worrying too much about immediate profits, and one day you will monetize. You know, we all saw the firm, the social network, let's not monetize so, too quickly, let's go for the unicorn, let's blah, blah, blah. You know where I'm going with this, Michael? That, that world changed pretty much overnight. From what I see in this market, most VCs now are telling their companies that they need to be thinking about cash break even, self-sustainability, really, really quickly now. And I think there's a lot of consequences to that. First is that a lot of these founders don't realise that the game has changed because they never thought they would ever be asked to make money or to, to turn cash positive. How do you help your existing companies deal with that change in the marketplace? And how does it affect what you're looking at in the future? Well, Roger, you've hit on something I think that is extremely important to point out, which is this industry in which we operate, the venture capital industry, tends to overcorrect one way or the other. When the times Correct. are good, they're too good. No valuation is too high. No pursuit of growth is too valiant. Um, no amount raised in in any round, seed all the way up to pre-IPO is is too much. Um, and no deal can be done too quickly. 
right? We saw a bull market uh, for, for most of a decade, uh, which by the way, we also saw coming out of, and again, I, I, I go back to 2000, 2001. We saw a market come out of that um, ecosystem and ultimately uh, got to the point where we hit the, the, the financial uh, uh, turbulence of 2008, 2009. Another market, uh, even more bullish, came out of that period of time and fundamentally continued unabated until a minor correction with COVID that just happened to be a fire drill for what we're going through now and more fuel in the fire for growth, growth, growth. Everything will be tech enabled. No valuation is too high. No amount of money is too much to put into a company at any stage. Now you get to a point where a correction has happened and VCs are telling founders that they have to get profitable on the cash that they have on hand. As ridiculous of a notion as paying a billion dollars for something well said. that has no revenue or just nothing fundamentally would underpin that, that sort of evaluation. So the answer is somewhere in between, which is yep. if you are partnered with a wonderful founder and a wonderful founding team, and first of all, that's the hardest job in the world, being a founder. Yep. You, you are on an island. You are betrothed to your, your shareholders, uh, your, your venture capitalists, your angels. You are trying to hire a team. In a lot of cases, that has to scale very quickly. You're trying to find product market fit. You're trying to pivot if you have to, uh, come up with new and innovative ways in which your, your technology can be used so that you can ultimately uh, grow even more, go outside of the industry that you may have, have originally uh, contemplated selling into. It's the hardest job in the world. In the past three years, founders have gone through a global pandemic where, in a lot of cases, the, their workforce became completely remote. Um, some companies were were very tethered to the negative in that, particularly, obviously, sport. So anything that was more purely sport or entertainment or live attendance focused was zero for four or five months in 2020, right? Now, that ended up being a bit of a fire drill and the market normalized. And then it was even more up and to the right in terms of how rounds were getting done, yeah. how valuations were looking and all of that. And then the market started to correct uh, just about a year ago. Um, it was certainly not a fire drill. The advice was, let's be a little bit more measured. Let's make cash go a little bit longer. If you have to raise money, let's let's raise it now before things get too tough. All of the sort of things that we do elbow to elbow with our founders. And you kind of get through that. And then banks start going under uh, a, a month ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you have a lot of obviously uh, uh, connective tissue between what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and most of the startup community, not just, by the way, in the United States, most everyone banked yeah. with Silicon Valley Bank everyone. in some way, shape, they had or form. To. They, they were forced to. Across the they, world, if you if you were <laughs> operating within, within tech. So now in three years, founders, pandemic, market reset, banking crisis, and again, it's already the hardest job in the world. And now you have VCs telling them they have to get profitable on the cash. It's just, it's, it's, it's incongruent, right? Now, there is capital out there in the ecosystem. There is, there is. Um, so what, what, will, you know, what will most likely take shape is what we've already seen. Valuations have adjusted. If capital um, has been raised, it has happened at a more prudent or uh, corrected valuation that it, than it had before. Obviously, that's a much bigger swing in the later stages. And the early the earlier stages, 
you know, if you're coming off of a seed, you know, maybe you're doing something flat. You're seeing a lot more convertible note structures. Uh, I know, Roger, you're seeing that as well, which is totally fine. It's industry yeah. standard in this market. Um, we think there'll probably be more companies that that don't make it because of, of, of less access to capital, which is fine. Not every company makes it as it is, but that will, you know, companies will probably fail more quickly um, versus uh, versus the alternative. And at the end of the day, it's basically fundamentals. We're back to fundamentals. We're back to fundamentals. Blocking and tackling. You, you, blocking it. Love that. If you blocking were and not tackling. in position to be profitable a year ago, you're no more in position to be profitable right now, unless you're sort of at that breakout stage, whatever that revenue threshold is. Maybe on the precipice of, of cash flow break even. Yeah. That's seed, a great seed companies answer. are not all of a sudden going cash flow positive. No, 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 of course. But let's take one that's not seed and it's one of yours and, and one of our favorites uh, to make the example here, because I think it's super informative, Buzzer. Now, two years ago, 18 months ago, Buzzer was the, the talk of the town. Everybody's uh, everybody's conversation, kind of like breaker. What do you think of Buzzer? You guys have participated in the latest round but if I'm reading correctly, it's a major pivot. It seems to be going B2B and going to licensing. Can you tell me if that is true? And if it is true, how much guys like yourself that were needed to reinvest it told Bo that he had to change his model? This is a three-year-old company. Um, we were involved in the seed round right after COVID hit. And it was just Bo and an idea. So first year was building a product. And this actually dovetails very nicely into the media rights ecosystem and the direct-to-consumer conversation that we had we had a bit yeah. ago. Because if that is going to happen, something needs to power it. So Buzzer, as a next-generation BAM tech, has always been in the back of our mind. Bo and myself. Always. Bo's mind as well or just yours? Both of us. Bo's as well. Both okay. of us. Much in the way at overtime that creating and standing up IP underneath the brand of overtime was always in the back of everyone's mind. So to get some resonance uh, for a product like Buzzer, it had to be consumer facing. Now you can't make something consumer facing without having some content and some uh, um, some level of approval from the industry writ large. Now that was the NBA deal and Buzzer. Yep has been in partnership with the NBA almost from the beginning. And since the product launched two Octobers ago, that's been, really been sort of the, the foundation of, of that product, which is NBA, NBA League Pass and the associated property. So that is what it takes to show the industry, one, that it works, two, that you have a, a mousetrap to bring younger people into the media rights ecosystem and sell them product, but also be a an approved partner on the data side of the business and prove that out um, sooner rather than later. Um, and then finally, it's okay. With this, we can either be a subscription entity, a subscription brand on our own, or we can focus more on the B2B approach. But you can't do both. I don't care how well-funded you are, you can't do both. And Roger, in a market environment like this, we do not want to be in the rights game at all. Bo does not want to be in the rights game. So to do that and go out there and acquire rights to ingest and bring 
more consumer facing uh, product onto the platform, it's not a sustainable business model, particularly in a difficult market environment. So the opportunity to essentially put the polish on a product that is B2B and that can help power things like if the UK, uh, if the English Premier League ever does go purely direct to consumer, everything that's happening with every consumer brand that has live fascinating sport, anything fascinating. that has live sport in it buzzer is an accredited technology provider to global sport on the basis of what has been out in market for the past year and a half now to do so and ultimately become a scalable software driven b2b play the time is now to do that so it was something that i'm i'm really glad that that the, the piece that, that you're referencing came out um came out last week. I thought it was very well done and very succinctly says exactly what Bo has been doing over the past several months, which is have these conversations with the rights holders who are trying to power new product in an environment that is much more digitally enabled and direct to consumer. So, Michael, in the market that we're, we're now dealing with, with, um, with the war chest that you have, which is significant, I mean, you've been on everybody's dance card for an awfully long time, and, and that dance card is going to have got bigger and bigger. Give us an idea of how you start thinking about the, and I'm not trying to give a sort of adverse out of how you look at things for people who might want to pitch you, but what, what do you see coming down the track? You've alluded to a lot already, but in terms of this fund, with where we are in the world right now, we've all in agreement that sport has massive opportunity, that there is a, a digital and data revolution that we're more than in the middle of. What's changed between, say, fund one and fund two of how you're going to be looking at, at new portfolio companies to consider? With regard to the specifics, um, a fund two that is 60% larger than fund one, I think, gives us a lot more ammunition um, in any market. As the market has recalibrated, we look at the opportunity as we can get more product market fit for our dollars. It's that simple. Um, a, a seed two years ago was functionally the size and valuation of what an A might be in today's market. We, we very much consider ourselves a seed to series B fund. I think you'll probably see a lot more series A's and series B's out of this fund, given its size. Um, we're looking at the ability to partner with great founders and help them build to that, that next level, right? And if we can have a better understanding as to how that product is working uh, in, in, in that chosen area and, and how we can help add fuel to the fire with our unique network and LP group and our industry acumen, I think we can better supercharge growth more quickly. And that's something... Doug, myself, and our team relish being able to do. Um, you know, we look at a market environment in which um, the best companies may not even be racing right now. If you can avoid being in the market, you, you're probably not in the market. But you will have to be at some point, unless you can get profitable. And Rogers, like we talked about earlier, to ask someone to get profitable is to completely erode growth at this point in time. And the, the building journey still has to happen. So we're looking for, for wonderful founding teams that, um, you know, that are looking toward that next stage of growth and development. And we believe that we're 
a, a very well suited capital partner uh, for that for that stage. There'll probably be even more of a funding gap in in the A and B stage. I think that that's been written about ad nauseum, and um, you know the risk reward on on a seed deal is obviously the the, the highest that you can possibly get, but also the riskiest uh, um, from a risk perspective. But there's not a lot of reset in in those valuations. You know what was a a, a seed deal a twenty or twenty five million dollar pre money valuation? It's not going to change that much. There's only so low that you can go, and the best founders aren't going to accept anything lower than that. But at the A and B stage, even if you have some some breakout potential, a rocky market just makes capital access more difficult. So you know the recalibration of those valuations had, we think has very much provided some intriguing. Roger, some yep. intriguing opportunities. Uh, um, well, well, listen, let me play back what I've heard in the last two answers because I think you're saying some very profound things there. That phrase, more product market fit for my dollar, that's amazing. That's that I've never heard that put so eloquently. You could call it special situation, call it whatever you want. But, you know, also the answer you said about Buzzer, about how they've kind of like proved the concept by B2C and now you're going to do the business properly B2B. Would I be right in thinking that you are going to look for the best companies that are out there that have already done the hard yards, um, already got well up the field and through no fault of their own are finding themselves in a market that's changed, need a little bit of money, and Michael Spirito is going to come along and say, I'm your partner. I can't give you the valuation. I would have 12 months ago, but I'm still your partner. Let's work together. Is that what Fund 2 is all about? Special situations? It's not all about special situations, Roger. But what I will say is that the opportunity to partner with founders and teams that need that fuel on the fire for their next level of growth is absolutely there. Special situations to me more is more structure and adding a bunch of structure into a deal. We don't want to make things unnecessarily muddy or murky. Um, we also like love co-investing with, with other people. We do that quite a bit. And we think at the Series A and Series B level, there's a real opportunity to partner with other funds and other investment organizations toward that, that goal. The valuation will be what it what it is and what it should be, and that um, will come about organically in those conversations. But with respect to Sapphire Sports Second Fund, we are very much in business. We are very much circling back with a lot of founders that we've had conversations with in the past. Maybe the valuation was a little too frothy. Maybe we didn't quite get there in the last round. Maybe it's a space that we've spent a lot more time in and identified some some opportunities where um, there has been some growth and there has been more product market fit maybe than we saw a year ago, two years ago. And we think that the the valuation opportunity is going to be going to be a bit better because if you're building a technology enabled company that is advancing next gen media, gaming, health and wellness, digital commerce, and you look at the access points that we have throughout the global sport, media, entertainment, and culture industries, I think it's hard to identify a better capital partner than Sapphire Sport for a founder and a founding team uh, uh, who's building in that area. And 
we have uh, fresh capital. I, I wouldn't say, uh, what, did, what did you say, Giles? A, uh, <laughs> a mountain of it. I mean, a, it's a it's a very nicely sized fund and it's- That'll right, go a long yeah, way yeah, these days. Yeah, it's a, 180 it, will go a long it, way these it, days. It, we're very, very thrilled um, to, uh, to to have that. And we, we, we truly believe that our dollar uh, will go a bit further in this market. Michael, let me ask you something about what you said earlier when you said the VC industry exaggerates both ways. One could make a very critical case against the VC industry for exactly that reason. What I'm seeing in the marketplace now is that there's a lot of VCs going to companies and regarding valuation, rather than going back to fundamentals properly, they're still being very superficial. They're going to companies and saying, what did you raise at the last time? Um, we'll just round that up and that's your next valuation. It seems to be that that's become the playbook now. Just, you know, whatever your, your your post money was the last time, that's what we're going to pay you now. We'll make it a little bit neater. Surely there's a better way to try and filter out what is real value and what is stuff that is probably going to zero uh, rather than just very simply coming in at the last valuation because that's the way the playbook now says you have to. That's the trick though with the uh, with the early stages, Roger, is there's not a lot to go on other than what someone else is willing to pay. Um, so if you're competing for a deal and you really want to invest in that company and there's multiple term sheets, that's sort of how evaluation first gets set. When there is a market correction such, there, such as there has been, Existing investors and founders are loath to reduce the valuation because of the associated dilution. Now, you have to kind of risk reward that with whoever your new capital partner might be, meaning do how badly do we need the cash? Do we really want to work with this partner? Can this partner help us supercharge our growth to a to a to a degree that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do? So you sort of have to weigh all that. The industry standard at least has over the past two quarters become Reopen the last round at the same price per share, which is fundamentally a flat valuation and hope that you get through on the other side if you have a capital partner that's willing to pay that. Or just put it into a convertible note so that people get the associated protection uh, with respect to a discount. That's what we're seeing more of than anything else. Companies that are raising at an up round are usually doing so at the earlier stages, meaning they had done a seed at a low valuation, which was not going to go much lower to begin with. And they've done a lot since then. And you still can reward doing a lot from your seed to your A or your seed one to your seed two. And that valuation maybe is if you jump from a 20 to a 30 or a 35, that's a lot more livable because you can still own the percent that you want. We were seeing companies jump from 20 to 100 from, from a seed one to a seed two or a seed to an A. Uh, a year and a half, two years ago, that isn't happening anymore. Michael, let me let me give you the the Michael Holding bouncer question now, and and I do it with all the sympathy in the world, right? I, I, I'm a, a great pragmatist. There's a whole lot of private equity, and, and let's just say venture is a, a version of private equity. I it's private. I you're marking your own homework on valuation i.e. you can mark to market in your funds whatever you say that it is. Surely there's a lot of funds out there, and you can see whether Sapphire is in this case or not, the first fund, obviously, that are sitting on a lot of portfolio 
at a valuation that is way too high. And as you said, there's no exit that's on the horizon with the IPPO market and everything like that. How are you speaking to your LPs? I say you, the industry, not Sapphire, and explaining to them that you're probably sitting on a lot of valuations that should be marked a lot lower. From our point of view, and I'm saying say this Sapphire specifically, um, we are very conservative in our approach. Um, as, as you both know, we are on the Sapphire Ventures platform. Um, over a decade of fund management um, with uh, a German LP, an SAP, uh, to our growth fund. Um, we, of course, have have uh, multiple LPs in, in, in Sapphire Sport um, who run the gamut of different industries across sport, media, entertainment, as you, as you well know. But in terms of how we do our accounting and how we do our, our markings, it is a very, very conservative approach and always has been from the beginning of Sapphire Ventures and the associated funds on on the growth uh, the growth fund side. So we're also earlier stage. So um, a lot we haven't had a ton of crazy markups to begin with, and those that are valued higher have actually done rounds and have been capitalized since valuations have been reset. So we look at this every quarter. We audit. Um, we are very, very conservative and pragmatic in our approach because it does us no good to do anything otherwise. We are are as um, open and honest with our LPs uh, uh, as you can possibly be with respect to how our companies are valued. And we do that on a quarterly basis. Um, we typically mark to the last round. Um, in a case in which a market has fundamentally reset, uh, we look at cash and cash burn and how long uh, a company has to get to a point of a next financing, and we mark appropriately. So uh, we are very comfortable with our approach. Wonderful. I will speak only with respect to Sapphire in that regard, because I'm not sure that's the case across the industry. It isn't. It is not. But that was a wonderful answer. I think a lot of people will take a lot of comfort out of Sapphire as a future partner based on that. Answer. Michael, I've got I've got one final question. At the very top of the show, we talked about we're seeing trends, say, in tennis and snooker and other sports. We're seeing the reemergence of China as a global partner in the, in the global ecosystem of sport, as it always, or wasn't always, but it has been for a while. Then COVID in particular has changed things and there's a geopolitical swirl. But clearly the Far East, clearly Asia, um, representing two thirds of the global population is going to have an enormous impact on the future of sport, both in terms of people consuming sport and how sports are consumed, but also from from technologists and people. How is Sapphire set up for the different pockets around the world where the very best founders um, can get to you? Is that through your partners? How, how do you operate? Them? We do have partners that are global. Um, I mean, you, you know who our LPs are. They operate globally. They own. Um, entities and brands globally. In terms of where we invest, we mostly invest in areas that we know the best. And as venture capitalists, it does help to be in markets and operate in markets where you can be closer to the founders, particularly at the early stages, and help them build. So for us, it's predominantly uh, North America. And within North America, Bay Area, Southern California, New York. We, of course, um, look and have invested in in Europe, uh, in Israel. Uh, we are open globally for business, but it's a bit higher of a hurdle in markets in which we are not 
organically operating. And specifically, our team is 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 fundamentally in the Bay Area and New York with with coverage uh, in in the U.S. But that's still where we're seeing the most founders, the most new ideas, uh, uh, particularly within North America, is Northern Southern California uh, and New York. And of course, there's there's hot spots around uh, around Europe, whether. Berlin, Lisbon, Amsterdam, obviously the UK, uh, et cetera. Uh, with respect to Asia, it is a market that that we follow closely. Um, we we haven't done an investment that is based in the Asian market to date, but it's not to say that we couldn't we couldn't do that. And we we certainly are uh, uh, aware of um, the global uh, um, significance of, of of that marketplace, and quite frankly, hope to. Through our LP network, hope to bring some of the companies that we've already invested in into that market versus vice versa, right? Invest there and bring bring to North America. Well, I bloody well knew this was going to happen. Is that uh, we've done just over an hour with you, and I think we could have done a lot longer, um, but we can't. You probably have to go and do your day job, you know, put on a shirt and jacket and go to work. <laughs> Roger's probably looking forward to a little glass of prosecco or something as it's yeah. that time on Lake Como. So, Francia <laughs> I think just on behalf of all of us that I not entertain my the, the the insight that you've given us Spl- in just splendid, world, splendid. It's it's been a masterclass, I think, for, for both Roger and I. I've really enjoyed this. So on behalf of us all, thank you so much for giving your time. We very much hope that we're gonna see you in Lake Como later on in the year. It's a an unruly bunch, but I think you'd enjoy the the, the crack, as they say in Ireland, very much. Um, but really until then. Thank you very much and good luck with the next few months ahead of you. Well, thank thank you both for having me. I've been looking forward to doing this for a long time. Um, I, I too could have gone on um, for 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 more, but it, but alas, it is it is a Monday here in in New York. But <laughs> thank you for having me. I will be in Lake Como. Um, I'm very Splendid. very much looking forward to seeing you there. If not sooner, Giles, of course, I'll be in the UK between now and then. Wonderful, Michael. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, Rog. Fantastic. I know that I well, I know because of the notes that you shared about the many questions and, and bits of insight that you and Grant, um, there were questions from Grant in there um as he goes on black ops wherever he is. Um <laughs> what a what a wonderfully articulate gentleman Michael is in terms of not just a, a, just a very realistic view of the world we're in and also a very exciting um view of the world that he's in. I, I thought he was very honest and transparent. Um, we got to hear him talk about a couple of specific investments in uh, Overtime and Buzzer, which are, are two of our industry's most cherished um, examples of sport tech. And I thought that I thought that, that was really fascinating when he talked about them. Uh, we heard about him um, talking macro and, and, and valuations and how they're approaching it. Um, I, 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 I didn't expect him to be as open as that. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. I could have gone on all afternoon. Well, thank God you didn't, because we've all got to get yeah. to our families. But um, it's been, uh, once again, it's been great to be back on, on the grounds and conversation, Roger. Um, thank you for your time and your forbearance with me. Um, it's, been, <laughs> <laughs> it's been too much fun. Um, and I can't remember what to do now. Now you have to take over, because I'm not very good at finishing these bloody things. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. Thanks for organising that with Michael. Um so let's wrap up and remind everybody that um, you can follow us uh, the, the Are You Not Entertained uh, in group community on Twitter uh, at EntertainedR, that's the word you can follow uh, Giles at 
At Giles Morgan 71. And you can follow myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Roger, until next time. Thanks. You're really bad at that, Giles, that last bit. <laughs> <laughs>